0: What did you have for breakfast this morning?
1: I had tea and a slice of toast with peanut butter on it.
0: Oh, that sounds good. For a second, I thought you might say avocado, like, the you know, the big avocado toast.
1: Yeah, I'm not. No, not into that. No, <laughs> I've never actually had it, so
0: I can't speak to it. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human. This is a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit by exploring journeys of people from all walks of life. There are often little nuggets of wisdom we can find in another person's story that we can then apply to our own lives. We're not perfect, we're not alone, we're only human. Today, I'm joined by Rita Fields, uh, also Dr. Rita Fields. Um, she is a mother, a daughter, um, a wife, a uh, CEO of two companies, uh, 313 Industries, which is a machining and milling company, and then Copper Phoenix Consulting, uh, a consultancy that offers expertise on talent and operations management. And uh, she's also on the faculty uh, at the University of Michigan in the School of Management. And Rita, thank you so much for being here. I One of the big reasons I invited you here is I was, I don't remember how, LinkedIn is a a web of amazing connections. So I don't remember exactly how I was connected to this post, but at the beginning of 2020, you had this post that kind of uh, compared your life in 2019 versus your life in 2009. And there were just some, uh, you know, I think part of the reason you were doing the comparison was the stark contrast. And there was. And so, um, and then I saw you had a TEDx Detroit talk. A while back, called "How Eating from the Garbage Can Taught Me How to Lead," and I watched that, and I was just blown away. So, um, thank you for being here.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for asking.
0: Yeah i I wrote down my notes here. I'm like, she is the definition of resilience. Um, and you know, real quick, because I I hate to ever sum up someone's life, but especially from watching that TEDx Detroit talk. Uh, I mean, when we talk about resilience, you. You had um, were a teenage mother, and then you were homeless for a while, and then you were going to school, and I mean, you know, you you just climbed, uh, you know, up and up, and, and and got back up every time you got knocked down, and I want to talk about that, but that's that's what I mean when I when I suggest that you're the definition of resilience. Um, in that talk, you mentioned how your mother was mentally ill, um, and that's kind of what. or at least from the talk, it sounded like that's why you kind of left home and and kind of started this new journey. Was that the case?
1: Yes, my mother is mentally ill. We believe that she's paranoid schizophrenic. She actually received that diagnosis um, a couple of years ago, and she's always been sick. And yeah, I grew up with a very sick mother, and it was a pretty damaging to us, um, and very difficult. If I, if you've not had a mentally ill parent, then it's probably really hard to understand how incredibly impactful that is. Um, but it's, it was pretty devastating to me. And so I, I, um, we had an abusive, um, childhood. I have two sisters and I, and by the time I reached the age of 17, I had just, I, I guess I just had enough. And so I ran away. And it was on the first day of what was supposed to be my senior year in high school. I just left. I just blew that popsicle stand and
0: took oh off. Oh, my gosh. What yeah. Was this something you had run by your sisters or, I mean, did they have a similar experience or did you, I mean, was this a case of just leaving and cutting off touch with everybody or?
1: Yeah, I, I literally, um, I remember that my mother gave me a dollar to get food for the cat, which tells you how long ago that was because you could actually get cat food for a dollar. Um, but I I took that, and I had a dollar for the bus, and I just didn't come back. I hadn't talked to my sisters about it. At that point, my older sister had left, and my younger sister was there. and That's a whole other story. We have all had um, interesting lives. And um, so, no, I didn't talk about it with anybody. I just left. I just can't
0: even imagine. Like, I'm sure your first thought was, I need to leave this environment and find a different one. But at the same time, that must have been just extremely overwhelming to, to process, like, because what's next, you know, that's, that's tough, I think, especially at 17.
1: Yeah, very much so. And you know, it's interesting, because even looking back at it, it really doesn't make any sense. I hadn't thought through what my next steps were. My goal was to get away from my mother and I had serendipitously or not met some random guy at the mall like a few weeks before. And he told, I had told him a little bit about my mother and he said, Oh, you can always come over to my house. And so I just went to his house. Which was incredibly stupid, incredibly dangerous, all those things. But um one of the things that I have learned recently is that typically your short or your long term thinking capabilities have are not developed until you're about twenty-five in most people. And so obviously that was an an indicator that mine was not developed because <laughs> I left and I figured my thought was that a stranger would be better than her, and so I left.
0: I was going to say, at seventeen, e- even without you know an unstable and, and abusive home. At seventeen, I feel like so many of us are trying to get away from our parents anyway, or or you know we don't prefer to be with them, and you know meeting people. I feel like that behavior in general is very typical of like you said of a seventeen year old because we don't yet have the mental ability yet to put a lot of that into perspective. So I I don't, yeah, I I mean, you you know, you said it was dangerous and stupid and I'm sure, but I don't know. I feel like that's what we do as 17 year olds is dangerous and stupid things. I mean, I hate to defend us all.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that what, you know, and, and honestly, I'm such a rational person. So And maybe I'm more rational now because I did something like that, but now I couldn't even imagine myself not contemplating, well, what are you going to do? You are a dropout. You don't have a job. You don't have clothes other than what's on your back. It's not like I planned this and I had a little backpack full of toiletries. I literally left with oh, wow. um, a black dress on. It was a black, um, pretty skin tight dress at the time <laughs> and, <laughs> and shoes. And I had like a little tiny purse with the $2 in it and my ID and that's what I left with. So. I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I, my goal was, um, you know how you watch those movies? Have you ever seen those movies where there's some robot and he's been programmed to destroy something and like through sure. that little scope, all you see is like destroy and they're just focused on, yeah. it was like my scope was just focused on like run. Like that was it. Like I just had to get away from this person who had really tormented me my entire life as, as long as I could remember, um, and that anything would be better than being with her. And so that's, it was, that was what was in my mind at the time.
0: Oh my gosh. So, so what, what did you do? What was the next step then?
1: So I went to the home of this individual and he lived with two other people. (laughs) It was crazy. And I just told him I ran away and he was four years older than me. He was 21 and he didn't care. And so I, I stayed with him and, um, I stayed with him for, several months. Um, Eventually, I reached out to my best friend. I gave her a call because she was really the only one that I missed. And um, she told me that my mom had been looking for me. And and I, I wasn't moved by that because I assumed... Um, and this was later confirmed that my mother was looking for me because I was part of her welfare grant. And so without me being in the house, she could get in trouble and her welfare check could get cut. And ultimately, um, I don't know how she managed to track me down. I don't know how that happened, but I, she actually did come. Maybe my, my girlfriend told her something. Um, I don't know, but she happened to come to the house. And I remember this was like maybe, I don't know, three or four months later. And I remember going through the window, like I (laughs) went through the window and just ran to get away from my mother. And, um, and I just, I did not want to go back to her. There was just no way that that was going to happen. I was done. I was done.
0: Oh my gosh. So did, did that mean you left the individual's house then? I mean, then you're now on your own again?
1: Well, that's a good question. So I left and I stayed away for hours, um, hopefully waiting her out. And I came back and she was gone. And um the guy that whose house I was at said, you know, she really wants you to come home. And I said, I don't care. I don't want to go home. And I stayed with him. And so we eventually moved because she knew where we were. Mm. Um, and, um, we moved to this motel in a suburb of Detroit and just hung out there for a while.
0: What, what were you, I mean, at the time, were you starting to, now that you had some time away from mom, were you starting to piece together, like what was going to come next for you? Or was it still kind of like, you're still the 17 year old, like, I don't, I don't really know this is day by day.
1: Yeah. B I did not have a plan, so I was just it was it's weird I mean honestly, I know this sound they may this may sound strange, but I really did not have a plan. I was just I was with this guy every day and um I that I didn't think about school I didn't think about my health. I didn't think about anything. I just didn't want to be with my mother. And so over time, a a bunch of things happen. It's so I'm actually in the process of writing my book. I'm in the editing stage of writing my book. And it is, it is insane what (laughs) some of the stuff I was stalked while I was gone twice. Um, I had a kidnap attempt. It was just the stuff of books. It's just absolutely incredible to me, but Regardless of all those things, I remember thinking that my life had been so difficult that it didn't really matter what I did. And so even though I knew, I thought I was smart and I thought that I had a lot of potential in me, but that was definitely something that my mother never told us. We were not sewn into the way that a lot of people are by their parents. Um, my mother often didn't even know what grade I was in, you know, and she was sick. I, I, you know, in her defense, when you're that sick, it's very difficult for you to focus on reality. You're just, um, I don't know, you know, you're just where you are. So, um, no, I didn't have a plan. And eventually we got kicked out of the motel. We couldn't afford it. We ended up on the street, um, I panhandled like it was a job. I panhandled from the morning into the evening, which was hours a day. And, um, and I did that as much as I could to, with very little success. Um, people, um, I learned were not very kind to homeless people or at, at best they would just totally ignore you. And at worst, you know, they might call you names, but they definitely weren't prone to giving change to, uh, a, someone who looked like a kid, um, who's on the street corner.
0: People yeah. would call you names. I mean, they would call like actually approach well, you and, or say things. They,
1: they wouldn't approach me and call me names, but they would mumble things under their breath, like, this is ridiculous, and who do you think you oh. are, and things like that. Oh, and so, wow. um, so it was just, it was very disheartening. So at that time, I was trying to, you know, panhandle enough to survive, um, because we were homeless. And so my mind shifted away even further from my mother and going home to how do I figure out how to live in the reality of my life right now. And, um, and that was incredibly difficult, incredibly time consuming. It consumed all of my energy. And then I found out I was pregnant and, I was stupefied. And this, this sounds so ludicrous, but like, I thought, how did this happen? But of course it happened. I mean, I, of course it happened. I, um, I don't want to get into too many details, but let's just say that there were certain requirements that I had to meet to be with this individual and they resulted in my getting pregnant. And so, um, I, then I had to figure out what I was going to do with, this entity that was growing inside my body. It was just, it was incredible. And so eventually I, um, eventually I got to the point where I, um, we, I'd gotten so sick and, and stayed on the streets for so long. We literally were in a park and at night I would sleep under the box compactor that was behind this this grocery store because that was like the safest place to be. And, and this is so interesting to me. I didn't want to stay in the park because you would get arrested for vagrancy. But now today, That would actually have been smart because I would have had a bed and they would have at least given me a sandwich, right? But I wasn't the strategist that I am today. So I did not (laughs) want to get arrested. And so I would sleep on a brick, like a a cinder block brick, and at least I didn't have to worry about someone bothering me. Because you can imagine when you're young, even if you're not young, you're incredibly vulnerable when you're on the streets um, to all sorts of people, um, people who are both homeless and not. And so... Um, so I did that and, um, eventually we had to get to a shelter and, um, a couple of homeless people told us about one and I made this long walk in the rain. I'll never forget that. It was a horrible yet miraculous day. And, and by the time we finally ended up at the shelter, I was, um, seven months pregnant. Yeah. So. Um, during my time as a homeless person, I, uh, had to eat out of the garbage can, which is where the title of my TEDx talk comes from. Um, because that's what you do. You do what you have to do in order to survive. And so I, I did that. And, um, the, one of the toughest times, aside from being homeless, very difficult, was when I was supposed to leave the shelter and a social worker was talking to me about what my plans were. <laughs> and she said, so what now, what are you going to do? You're sure. seven months pregnant. Um, um, Or by the time I was supposed to leave the shelter, I was eight months pregnant. And I said, well, I'm just going to go back to where I was. And she looked at me like I was crazy legitimately and said, you, you can't go back to the brick I, what if you have you can't have the baby on near this on the ground? And I said, well, I'm across the street from a hospital. I mean, it'll be fine. I'll just. Oh goodness! She said, <laughs> I know. I'm, look, I was. <laughs> At that point, I had just turned 18. She said, I know you don't understand this, but when you're giving birth, you're not going to feel like walking a block to get to a hospital. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to not want to walk at all. And so I said, well, I don't have any options. And she said, well, you could go home. And, and that was not an option. And like she had to eventually say to me, if you don't go home, you might have your baby like on the ground and you don't want to hurt your baby, do you? And it was it was only when she said that I was arguing with her, I was justifying like why I could still be homeless and still have a baby. It didn't make any sense. I, I don't know if I was like, I had like PTSD. I don't know what was going on, but I was not. But when she said that, I said, okay, I can't go back to the street. And so I went home to my mother and it was not a pleasant experience <laughs> at all my mother put locks on all the doors so like you know how you have a normal place where you stay and there's doors she put yeah. padlocks on all of them she we already lived in an apartment or flat that had bars on the windows like it was a prison and at the time she had a rotary phone and you could lock rotary phones. Now you may not know this cause you, you seem, appear to be fairly young, but with a rotary phone, you could actually put a lock on it and keep it from spinning. So you couldn't use the phone. And that was the environment I had to stay in. Um, and I said, well, what if there's a fire? And my mother said, well, you better hope there's not a fire. And I stayed there because I didn't want my baby to be hurt. And I was thinking to myself, see, this is why I don't live with this woman. Who locks up their kid like an animal? Um, so there was that. And and during that time, I really thought about giving my child up for adoption because I figured between my gene pool and his, he didn't have that great of a shot. And um, I started researching adoption rates and found that adoption rates are not attractive for people of color. And so I realized that, wow, like I could give him up for adoption, but what if he thinks I gave him up because I didn't want him? And it's not that I don't want him per se. I just think I'm sort of screwed up and he actually sort of might be screwed up too. And so for whatever reason, I made the decision, um, to just sort of wait and decide when I gave birth, and um, and then when I did, I decided to keep him.
0: Oh, I imagine, yeah. I, I oh my gosh, I, I imagine that looking back, I mean, I I would assume that you're so happy that you, you oh, have him my today, God. and yes, yeah, I mean, that yes. Yeah, I I have two two kids uh, myself, and just there's something it's so hard to describe, but that unconditional that you know what someone uh, I spoke with someone a couple episodes ago on the podcast, and we were talking about this, and she described it as children your child is the only human being that can give you this array of emotions that no other human being in the world can, like not your mother, not your father, not your sister, not your nobody except your child. Um, So I just imagine that once you had him, I I could just imagine that that might've, you know, you absorbed that and thought, Oh my gosh. And then now, of course, you know, years later looking back.
1: Yes. Oh my God. I'm so, it was the best decision um, I've made. And, um, and he came out and he just had this look on, he had like the consummate WTF look on his face. Like (laughs) what in, I mean, like he had one eyebrow up and I just, and I'm like, dude, I so can relate to that. What are we doing here? Yeah. And I was like, you know what? It's Let's just figure crime. it out. Exactly. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? I'll keep him. I didn't have a, I I literally did not have a diaper, a shred of clothing, no crib, nothing. And, um, because I wasn't planning on keeping him and, um, yeah, I'm so grateful that I made that choice because, um, so, I mean, everything that's come since, uh, since he has been born has been because of him. So I wouldn't be Dr. Fields. I wouldn't, um, have the life that I'm having that I enjoy right now because, um, I, I only did it for him. And so, yes, it was, that was a moment of sanity in that year, <laughs> year and a oh, half yeah. of be just not being very sane, it seemed.
0: Yeah. I mentioned at the beginning that LinkedIn post you had at the beginning of 2020 and you compared 2009 to, to 2019. Um, and that caught my eye. Um, oh, first of all, you're you're, you're such a beautiful writer. Um, I love the way oh, you write. So I'm, you. I'm happy to hear you're working on a book. I can't wait for that.
1: Thank
0: you. Um, yeah, you're welcome. But you wrote about how you know, in 2009 that, uh, you know, you felt like your marriage was falling apart, no time to work out, chronic migraines, ulcer. I mean, definitely, you know, all sorts of points of uh, stress. Um, And then Mm -hmm. you meant, you know, you kind of compared that and contrasted it to 2019, where you're now CEO of two companies, you're a professor, married, you've traveled a lot, you feel like you're healthy, you're sleeping sound. Um, What if we go back to that first part in 2009 where you were kind of reflecting what was going on at that time? Like what was this just uh, another bump in life or had things, you know, turned for you? What was happening?
1: Yeah. So it was, it was interesting. Um, I was an executive in healthcare and I was charged with managing the human capital plan of opening a $400 million hospital.
0: Oh, yeah, that's, that's a big deal. Responsibility, yeah.
1: It's a big deal. And um I'd also started a doctoral program and I was in a marriage that was dying. Um it was just falling apart. And I remember feeling, I remember distinctly um, Having to come home and not wanting to come home and driving around and sitting in my driveway for hours, just sitting there because I didn't want to go in the house and feeling like I was not being authentic, like I was this fraud. It was just this weird, interesting.
0: Like it felt like um, it wasn't your life.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting because I think I I had finally started to realize that my entire life after I had my son had been focused on a single goal, and that was to not go back to the garbage can, which is an admirable goal. Who wants to do that? Right. Very and then so, I had yeah. this kid. Right. And so um, but the price for that was that I wasn't consciously making decisions for myself. So I only took jobs that I thought would be secure. I only did things that I thought would allow me to, um, be accepted so that I wouldn't have, I mean, it was just, I wasn't living my life for myself. I was living my life in, um, homage, paying homage to this fear for all this time. And that before I'd had my son, I lived my life in fear of my mother. And so like my entire life up to that point had been like consumed in fear. What I've learned since then is that a lot of people live like that and they may not be aware of it, but they have spouses they don't really like if they're being honest with themselves or they have jobs they absolutely detest or they they don't even know Let me give you an example. This is going to sound weird, but I, um, that's where I was. I eventually went through a divorce and that divorce was the catalyst for me to examine every area in my life, to ask myself whether or not it was true or not. And one day I decided while I was getting, I was going through the process of getting a divorce, which is devastating. I wasn't in love with my, my ex-husband at that point, but when you're in a marriage and you separate I mean, unless, I mean, I don't know. It's still very devastating because it's a tearing. It's a separating. We had been together for a decade. And so I, I was hungry. And so I went to a pizza place and I wanted a pizza. And so I went up to the counter and the woman said, what do you want? And I looked at her and I opened my mouth and nothing came out. And I just stood there and looked at her and she's looking at me like I'm crazy and she said, "What do you want?" And I realized that I had no idea what I wanted on my pizza, because for the previous ten years, I'd only gotten the pizza that my ex husband wanted, which was garbage can pizza. I don't know if you know what garbage can pizza no, is. No. No. Yeah, it's basically like every everything meat, on it. Every meat that you have, like no vegetables. Oh, okay. just whatever meat you have available on the pizza. It's greasy. It's disgusting. I've
0: heard of like a meat lover's pizza. It might be just a different name for a similar thing.
1: Yes, that's what it is. I don't like that. It makes me sick. But for the previous 10 years, that's all my husband wanted. And so I hadn't even, I'd been so disconnected from myself that I didn't even realize that I don't. I mean, I knew I didn't like it, but it never occurred to me to get my own pizza. So, so I'm in this pizza place and I start crying. The woman freaks out. Oh my god! You can take your time. You don't have to tell me yeah, now. Yeah, she's you like, what's going her on here? <laughs> I know, right? And so I'm, I'm like sausage and cheese. Which <laughs> it took me three or four orders to realize I don't like sausage and cheese either. I actually just like cheese <laughs> or pepperoni and cheese. But I had to go through this period of discovery. On what type of pizza that. And so then I asked myself, if that's true for that, what else is also true that I don't know about? And, um, that
0: was very insightful of yourself to, you know what I mean, to step back and think about that. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: Loss gives you space, margin. And so when you, um, when it is both painful and it's an opportunity. And so um, that was the start of me pretty much upturning everything and figuring out this new life that was a cognizant life. I compare it to the Matrix when, you know, there are people who are plugged up to the Matrix and then there are people that are unplugged from the Matrix. Sure. And we and yeah, the problem is you see Mr. Smith everywhere, but at least you're not plugged up to the Matrix. And so. I didn't want to be plugged in anymore. I wanted to be free. And so I made some decisions. I quit some jobs. And um, and I'm so grateful that I did it. Second best decision um, that I made practically in my life.
0: That's amazing. And then you, you eventually strike out on your own and decide yes. to become an entrepreneur, which did that feel very freeing? I mean, especially hearing this story now, I imagine that mm-hmm. felt very freeing.
1: It did. And I'll tell you, the reason why I did that is because, um, I have a couple decades of experience in human resources and I would watch people who had given their life to companies and to positions get rolled out like bulk trash on trash day. And I saw it over and over and over again and I also noticed that people who um, who had, who, who seemed to worship their work or their job didn't act the same way as people who had options. And so I made the decision that I always wanted to have options and that I never wanted to only have a single source of income again. Um, because you do work differently when you have the ability to say, you know what, this isn't working for me anymore. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to do something different. And so um, all those things coalesced into me choosing to do something very different.
0: I love that. You, this reminds me, you wrote somewhere this um, amazing text here. You you wrote. We think that our lives point to a single destination. This isn't true. We are trains taking particular journeys. We're scheduled to arrive at multiple destinations on an itinerary that is bigger than we can recognize. And I love that. I I never thought of it that way. And it, the reason I love it is because this clicked, like it just changed the perspective for me. This idea that, like, I think we all think about What's the one thing in life I'm shooting for? What's my one legacy? What, what am I working toward? What is this all about? And what you wrote there about, well, maybe it's actually a series of journeys independent or dependent on each other, but it's a bunch of different journeys. You're going to hop off this train, hop on the next one and go there. Yes. And I like that. That's what it yes. is. I feel like that's yes. what I needed. So thank you.
1: You're so welcome. It's true.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, mm-hmm. listening to your story, I can I can see that. And, you know, I think it's also, I think it relieves a little bit of pressure off ourselves, like to not have to think, what is that single journey I'm on? What is that whatever at the end of the track that I'm working toward? And now it's like, well, wait a second, this journey might last this long and then I'll evolve into the next one. And I, I like I felt pressure relieved when I read this.
1: Yes. I'm so glad to hear you say that because it's so true. I'm in my third iteration of a career. I, I mean, my resume is like 15 pages long. It's crazy, but (laughs) I've been in, I don't know how many industries, but the point is for you to, for me, the point has been to find meaning. And so all of them work together actually beautifully, actually. And so I don't limit myself to that. One of the things that I had to get used to once I decided to, cause I had the VP title a few times. Um, I had a six figure job. I quit that. I took a 60% pay cut with the first time that I quit. Um, just because my only goal was to be able to read, to write, and to travel. I needed time for that. And there was no way I was going to have that as a six-figure executive. And I knew that. And so I took this huge pay cut and figured out what was really important to me. And ultimately now I make more money than I ever made in my life. I mean, that wasn't my goal, but that's what happens when you choose thoughtfully. And I am, am so much better for it. But one of the things that was... An odd hiccup when I made this transition was the question that everyone seems to want to ask you when you meet them for the first time. What do you do?
0: Oh, I hate that question.
1: Well, I mean, apparently people don't hate it enough because, I mean, it is the question. It's the
0: single. Yeah.
1: Yeah. it is the, it's not how are you, it's what do you do, Yes, right? Um And so I didn't know what to say, because I do like a bunch of, it took me years to come up with, I'm a professor and a CEO, like years, because I'd be like, well, I do this, I'm also this, I do this, I do that, I do. But then I thought, why is it that I have to be defined by? So I got to the point where I would say, you know what, I do. I do a little bit of everything. And people would become like so that. uncomfortable at not being able to put me in a box.
0: Yeah, they can't because, comprehend that. Like, what do yeah. you mean you do everything? No, no, what do you do? What do you do?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because there's some value that people attach to it. And so if they don't know where to slot me, then they don't know how to rank me, right? Um, which is unfortunate, but I've learned, you know not to do that to people that you're, we're so much more than just the work that we do. Um, and unfortunately a lot of us may not be more than the work that we do. And we don't even like the work. That's actually the worst thing. Um, so
0: that's a good point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, there's this, I read this article once on a woman who was a hospice nurse and she had compiled, like the top five things that she heard people say on their deathbed, right? And like, none of them had to do with the fact that they were glad about staying at work, ignoring their spouses, ignoring their children. It was always regret that they spent too much time at work or at things that did not connect them to people. And that so resonated with me because that's not, I want a life at the end of my life that I can look back on and say, I've lived a full life. I've lived a thoughtful life. I've made some mistakes, but um, it, it was my life after a certain point. And for most of my life, it wasn't because like I told you, I was living in, you know, paying homage to the idol of fear for half my life. And so, I've only started the other half. So I this is this is much better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> much better.
0: It is. I'm so glad you brought that up, that question, because this is something that frustrates me. I I struggle with it with this podcast when I introduce people because I want to. You know, I have to assume that anyone listening doesn't know us or you know they might know me a little bit. Hopefully, they're listening to other episodes, but maybe they've never met you. So I think, well, how do I introduce Rita? Well, I do want to include a little bit of her career because uh, it gives them a sense of, you know, again, I guess that's what they expect. But I hate that. Like, that's why I try and throw in like a little bit of, you know, what are their family relationships? Like, they're more than just a CEO. They're a mother. They're a husband. I noticed that. Yep. It's tough though, because, you know, oh, I could go on and on. But I was watching last night, my son and my daughter and I were watching... um, I don't know if you ever heard of Ellen's Game of Games, Ellen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Hilarious. Great show. Great show. Yeah. But um, that show you watch like other reality shows and game shows. And they always, you know, so she'll call up the contestants and they're, you know, they're all excited and she'll say, well, what's your name? Where are you from? And what do you do? And every television show, you'll see this in the lower third at the bottom. It'll show their you know, on The Bachelor, it's yes. like their name, their age, but there's always their profession.
1: Yes. And like, I think it,
0: it's this vicious cycle of like,
1: yes, I don't, and the, the worst
0: part is I don't know what we should put there instead like I haven't solved the problem but I'm with you I wish we did not have this focus on like you said I I think you hit on something I think there's something to that idea of it's how we classify a group people yes whether we realize it or not we're gonna start judging you based on your answer to that question
1: totally totally and let me tell you something some of the biggest I won't say the word I was I was thinking jerks that I know have the biggest titles.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they care about it more.
1: Oh my gosh. They, they're not, they just have the title. But like, if you sat down with them to eat a, like, I wouldn't want to eat a warm biscuit with them in the street. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're not nice people. They just have an impressive title. And then I know people who don't have a title and they're the, they're, they're, they're just love walking around. You know, and and people don't even see them because of what they do. And so it's just this way of dehumanizing people that leads to, you know, societal um, apathy that allows us to feel comfortable discounting the contribution of everybody. And if there's one thing that I learned being on the street, I learned a few things, um, One of the things that I learned is that the worst thing that you can do to someone is not see them, not recognize them. It's extremely painful. Um, And it can be incredibly damaging. And so in order to see someone, you have to look past what they, sure, what they do is important. What you do is important. Um, It has a place, but it's not the place. It's just a piece. It's a puzzle piece. And then you figure out, but that takes time, right? And so if you're still plugged into the matrix, maybe you don't have that time. And, or maybe you think you don't have that time. You really do, but you don't think you do. And so as I get older, I'm going to be 46 this year and I've lived this life that is just amazing to me. And I lived it. Um, I've learned as I get older to really treasure um, the things that matter. And what people do is an element of that, but it's nowhere near um, the soul of that.
0: Oh, I love how you phrase that. Yeah. It, it is like it's you you mentioned that it's like measuring our contributions and I I guess that's what we're trying to do, but I think all we're measuring there is how much money we're contributing to the economy or something.
1: Exactly.
0: I wish we had <laughs> yeah, I wish we had some way of measuring like first of all, I don't think we have to measure, but if we're going to measure can we measure like the impact not the financial impact yes. on the economy but can we measure the impact on i don't know just humanity i guess that's yes. harder but oh yeah my gosh. like if we're going to measure yeah. like yeah i just uh it's so funny that everyone i talk to we we talk about this and i love it i'm glad we're bringing awareness to this but this idea of like what do you, that question those four words what do you yeah. do it just i mean Oh, and I, it's, I don't.
1: It's base. It's the basest. It's just the. It's the lowest common denominator. What yeah, do you and it do? starts
0: from like children because I mean, yes. you start in like grade school of like you know you're going to go to good college so that you can yeah. get a good job so that the what do you do answer you have is a really good one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then you end up not being able to sleep for 10 years because, and you're on Ambien because your job doesn't allow you sleep. I mean, like, so, so does, so who won there? You know, I mean, I, I, it's, it is, um, there's a wonderful book that I recommend that people read that was absolutely life changing for me. And it's, um, man's search, man's search for meaning. Um, Oh my god i'm blanking on the author oh i can't believe i'm blanking on the author but he i think he is he was a psychologist and he was in um auschwitz i believe the concentration camp and and he talked about how um he found joy in that place that was consumed by death and destruction and the horrors of the very worst of us, and he still found a way inside himself to find joy and meaning. And wow. if he could do that, you have to read that book. I mean, it's it's an old book, it's a classic, and I'm blanking on his name because I haven't had enough protein today. But um, oh, it's um, Victor. Is it Victor Frankel? Mm-hmm. I will find out. But it is something that. Gives you perspective, unlike um, almost anything I've ever read.
0: I gotta it's, check that out.
1: It's beautiful, man. It is Victor Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning, and so, um, so yeah, I um, am very grateful, and I try to offer my LinkedIn page is interesting. Because I try to only offer people things that will help. Um, I don't sell my businesses. I don't sell me. I don't um, do those things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Absolutely not. But just for me, because I've learned so much, I try to share some of the things that I know for people who I know are still working, um, who haven't gotten to a place of freedom yet um, and need some hope. Right? Because it's, it's rough out here. There's some really sad people who make a lot of money. And there's some really happy people who don't. And there's sad people who don't make a lot of money. But the point is to, to be willing to share yourself with everyone a bit. So that you can find out how to connect. And we have so much to give each other. So much to give each other. And so um, I have survived hell in my life um, a couple times over. And so I'm incredibly grateful. And I try to live a life that reflects that.
0: You really do. I mean, that was when I started looking into your story. And like I said, I did discover you from LinkedIn. So I started perusing there. And that was the first thing I was struck by is that you, you know, everyone uses tools and websites and social networks online for whatever they best see fit. But I loved how you were just, like you said, just out there to help people. I mean, honestly, it took me a moment to kind of figure out, you know, what do you do? Yeah. And, you know, because <laughs> you weren't pushing what, you know, your, nope. your business is. No, you were just uh-huh. being human. And you're like, hey, this is me. And then I started, you know, I found your TEDx talk and started to learn more about your story and all the struggles and the amazing journey you've been on. And I, from the TEDx talk, there were two things that stuck out to me, like, even more. The first was after you got kicked out of the motel um, and all that, you, uh, got a job for a couple of years and you said you took four buses in the morning to get there. And then one at
1: night.
0: Yep. Yeah. Like,
1: yeah, five total four in the morning, five at night.
0: Yeah, that is, I mean, I guess to some extent you don't, like, I don't know how to phrase this. That was maybe normal, right? Like, that's what you knew. So I'm sure it was really difficult, but maybe you didn't view it as anything more difficult than anything else in your life. But like, maybe when you look back now, but especially when I read that, I was like, talk about resilience. Like, I, I don't even can not imagine how long it took to take four buses there. Maybe they were short rides, but um, it's just, when I heard that, I thought, this woman... Is one of the strongest people I've ever heard of, and you know that's one of the beauty, uh, one of the beauty I think now of the world we live in now is that we can connect like this and find yes. each other kind of randomly. Um, it's a pretty big yeah. planet, although we, it turns out we don't live that far from each other. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but still, um, when I yeah, and the other thing that stuck out to me from your talk was, um when you said that when you finally did get a crib and you were putting it together, you spent eight hours putting it together with a butter knife. And again, I just thought, and and that's where I kind of sensed that love for your, your child. And, but I mean, I mean, eight hours putting a crib together with a butter knife is just, that's, these, that strength in my, just amazing. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for that. Yeah. It's yep. Both of those stories are true. The buses was incredibly difficult. I would leave at five in the morning to get to work at eight 30. And so, yeah, I had to drop my kid off. Then I had to get on the bus and then I had to go, you know, and I let, I worked far from, it was incredibly difficult. I did that for two years and I got very sick. I would. I remember going into the hospital for chest wall pain because I would be out in the element so much that I could not. I would get sick, but I did not um, have an option, and so that's. I just did what I needed to do. I didn't have anyone else to depend on. Um, yeah, and and the crib. I wanted. I figured if I was going to keep him, then I should keep him safe. And you know, if you. The standard butter knife is not exactly a good tool. So screws... No. <laughs> they
0: can bend sometimes very, pretty easily. <laughs>
1: they do, which is why you have to take your time. And I had put it together so strongly after that eight out, that like, that whole day, it took me all day to make it, that I could not get it apart. I remember asking a guy with tools to come. He could not unscrew. <laughs> like I was... So we had to like take the whole thing out and like, just put it on the, we couldn't even break it back down. Um, <laughs> because I was determined that I was not gonna, because, you know, I had read on TV that kids' heads were getting stuck in the middle of like cribs and stuff. And I'm like, that's not happening to my kid. Not after the hell. I mean, he was sleeping in, in a, a drawer from my, my drawers. Like, I cleaned out my clothes. He slept literally in a drawer with a pillow in it because we didn't have a crib. And yeah. so I just put him there and then I made his crib and then I put him in the crib. And I was like, "That's not falling apart, man. Not on my watch." <laughs> and I just, I thank, I thank God for that. I just, I, it's just been, it's been absolutely amazing. And so it's very, you know, I talk with people sometimes, and people, I'll tell you this, but people don't realize how strong they are. Somehow we think that we're weak. Um, and sometimes you don't realize how strong you are or how noble you are until you have to be in the midst of something and you push through. And so I tell people, I just learned a lot earlier. Some people never learn, unfortunately, that I can do stuff. I can't do everything, but if I can do it, then I should do it. Um, And that has translated so much in my professional life and in um, private philanthropy. I'm on the board of the shelter that I went to when I was uh, 17. And I've been on that shelter, that board, oh, yeah, for like 10 years. I'm actually about to age off. And they're like, the hell you are. You're not leaving this board. (laughs) What a way to give
0: back, though. That's just fantastic.
1: I'm routinely in tears. Because we're now this organization, we're making permanent housing and I'm like I just I it's like I'm I'm in a lifetime movie, except there's no like weird abuse or crazy titles, but you know, it's like a good lifetime movie and and I'm just uh it's amazing. My son is going to be twenty nine this year. I cannot believe I have a twenty nine year old kid. Wow. And he's expecting uh, my first grandchild. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. When he was little, he asked me how old I wanted to be before I was a grandmother. And I told him 60. (laughs) And he stopped and added it up. He's like, wait a minute. Do you know how old I would have to be? (laughs) I'm like, yep, I sure do. And I don't want you to have any babies before that, but... (laughs) <laughs> um, he, he's a little early, but I'm, I'm just grateful. He's a social worker and he, oh. he helps people who were like me when I, I used to be on welfare and I used to have social workers and they weren't, weren't very helpful to me often. And so he is an amazing social worker. And he told me that part of his um commitment to his clients is because he remembers the things that I told him and he's just it's just this beautiful like full circle moment that you know that's really all that you can hope for right you know um that's all that I've hoped for
0: oh uh, it's so amazing too because you know going back to where you know you m- may have given him up for adoption and decided to keep him and Yes. Thinking about the life you had together, you know, in those early years and how that's clearly probably influenced him now and now how the impact he's going to have on how many other families in wherever, whatever community, you know, he chooses to work in. I, you know, like, thank you for, you know, Uh you, you helped and and he's helping with that impact. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Are you going to make me
1: cry? Stop. Oh, you're
0: going to make me cry. Are you um are you excited for for having a grandchild?
1: Um, no. <laughs> no, no. Don't want to be a grandma. No. <laughs> well, I mean I don't even know how to act. I mean, there's like there's going to be this baby here that came from my baby. I mean, like I'm still trying to wrap my head around it cerebrally. Yeah. Um, but I I I'm just shocked, you know, for so much of my life, I didn't imagine myself getting old. And so the fact that I have a grandchild on the way is amazing to me. The fact that I need readers, like I was like, whoa, what, what do you mean? Readers? That's what old people, I mean, excuse me, but I mean, like, you know, that's
0: what. <laughs> no, I, I know it's over your head. Yeah. <laughs>
1: seasoned people wear readers or they use readers. And now I'm a seasoned person. And I like seasoned.
0: I, that's a great. Yes. yes seasoned. Yes, I like very that. well seasoned. <laughs> I remember yes, that.
1: Yes, yes. Yes. And so I'm one of those people. And, you know, in the beginning of my life, I never imagined that I would, I didn't, just didn't see a lot of life for me. Um, and so it's just a beautiful thing.
0: Oh, it so is. Rita, thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time. This is, oh, I got a huge smile on my face just because I'm, in. you are so inspiring. And, you know, I I don't only mean that because, you know, you've been through hell and back, as you said, but just you as a person, I mean, you know, I think you're Oh, well first of all, I'm really excited for that book. Let me know when that comes out. Um
1: I will. I will. I've been in this
0: I just started getting back into reading. I, I was a great reader as a kid and then I like to say the internet killed my ability to read, but it's my own fault. <laughs> yeah. So I've I've been well, reading books, books like crazy now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um so I'll have to add that to my list. But yeah, thank you. And you're um, so welcome. I'm so happy that we connected.
1: Me too. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you.
0: Since you've reached the end of this episode, I would love for you to send me an email at we'reonlyhuman2 at gmail.com. That's we'reonlyhuman2, the number two, at gmail.com. Send me an email and tell me what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.